0: Last month, I made the difficult decision to leave my faculty position at an academic medical center after more than nine years there because of a toxic and oppressive work environment that instilled in me fear of retaliation for being vocal about racism and sexism within the institution. It's a shame that I and many of my Black colleagues are leaving academic medicine. We would have ultimately cared for more Black patients, taught and mentored more Black trainees, and performed more critical research to eradicate health inequities. If academic medical centers and their leaders cannot adequately support black students and promote black faculty, then they will continue to leave. I was not the first to leave such a center and I will not be the last. These centers as exemplars of clinical, educational and research innovation shoulder the responsibility of ending health inequities and creating environments where Black students and faculty members can not only survive, but thrive.
1: That's emergency physician-turned-consultant Uche Blackstock, reading an excerpt from her first opinion essay titled, Why Black Doctors Like Me Are Leaving Faculty Positions in Academic Medical Centers. That's from January of last year. I'll bring you my conversation with her after a word from our sponsor. At Cytiva, our mission is to advance and accelerate therapeutics. Our customers undertake life-saving activities from biological research to developing vaccines, biologic drugs, and novel cell and gene therapies. Our job is to supply the tools and services they need to work better, faster, and safer. Learn more about Cytiva at Cytiva.com. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com. Hello, and welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, the founding editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare providers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. This week, I'm delighted to be talking with Uche Blackstock, an emergency physician. Former associate professor of emergency medicine at NYU Langone, who's turned diversity consultant. Welcome to the First Opinion podcast, Uche. It's a pleasure to talk with you today.
0: Thank you so much, Pat, for having me.
1: You open the episode by reading from your first opinion entitled "Why Black Doctors Like Me Are Leaving Faculty Positions in Academic Medical Centers," which STAT published in mid January, 2020. It's sometimes hard for me to tell on first reading a submission if it will make a good first opinion. I was just a few paragraphs into yours and I knew it was not only a keeper, but what my colleague Jason Eukman would call a talker, meaning an essay bound to start a conversation or a Twitter cascade. Before we dive into it, can you describe what an academic medical center is and what academic medicine is for listeners who aren't really familiar with the terms?
0: Sure. So academic medical centers are essentially uh, medical institutions where not only do uh, clinicians take care of patients, but they also teach medical students and trainees and perform really important research that's necessary for uh, the innovation of medicine and healthcare. care. Um, many of them have very esteemed reputations and they've been around for quite a long time and have significant history as well.
1: So they're they're basically the medical centers that are affiliated with uh, medical school. Is that right?
0: Exactly. Each of them have an affiliation with a medical school.
1: So, what excited you about pursuing that line of medicine?
0: Oh, so that's an interesting question. You know, I always, obviously, for a long time, I knew that I wanted to be a physician. Um, and then the question is, after you graduate from medical school, and you do your residency? Do you want to go into academic medicine? Or do you want to go into community medicine or private practice? And I knew that I wanted to stay in academic medicine because I found the environment incredibly stimulating. I loved teaching. I loved uh, sharing ideas with my colleagues. And um, I just knew that it was for me. Uh, I I imagined myself uh, spending my entire career in academic medicine. I had never thought that I would leave as I as I mentioned um, in the piece because I thought I really could build a successful career there.
1: So something or a whole bunch of somethings prompted you to make what sounds like a really wrenching decision to leave your position after almost a decade, is that right?
0: Yes, almost a decade. And it was interesting because I think earlier on in my career there. I kind of was sort of just going along, kind of going through the motions, doing what I had to do as junior faculty in emergency medicine. I was doing a lot of teaching. I was developing curriculums. And then I had this opportunity about two and a half years before I left to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work for the medical school. And that's when sort of everything changed. How so? Well, I had the opportunity to be in more of an administrative leadership position, and I had a better idea of how uh, the institution was dealing with these issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion. And initially, I went into this role very green and naive and, and excited for change. I had a lot of great ideas about programs that we could do for uh recruitment and retention of students and faculty of color for women faculty. And it was very soon, once I assumed that position, that it became clear that I don't think anyone really expected me to do anything in that role. It was more of a figurehead role um, and that I was actually too ambitious (laughs) um, for that role itself.
1: Don't you hate to hear that anybody is too ambitious (laughs) in doing the kind of work you were doing?
0: Yes, yeah, it was it was very disappointing. I had c- came forward with several ideas for programs and initiatives and it was immediately shot down. And it was clear to me that I don't think anyone that was in institutional power wanted me to actually get the work done.
1: Well, that's that's sad to hear. So that must be a prerequisite for any program like the one you wanted to start to succeed. It's it basically has to be not one lone person in a lifeboat doing it but everybody rowing together.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think for especially issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, I think for any organization inside medicine, outside of medicine, we need buy-in from from leadership. We need them to really dictate what the priorities are of the organization and then that ultimately trickles down to the to the rest of the people. Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't the case in my situation.
1: For you, was there a straw that broke the camel's back?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think once I realized that um, my work and my presence, even on social media, was being observed and um, there were concerns about what I was tweeting about or posting, and not even along a professionalism piece, just in terms of what I thought were the issues that needed to be addressed, not only within my institution, but within academic medicine in general, um, those did not align with, with NYUs. And I'll just put that frankly. Mm. And uh, it became clear to me that if I wanted to do work in a, a, an authentic way, and these were issues that I cared very deeply about, that I there was I could not do them at NYU. And I think the experience for me was actually... So traumatizing that I was offered actually Associate Dean of Diversity at Harvard Medical School, uh, which is my alma mater, and I declined even that role because I realized that I think my time in academic medicine had come to a close and that I could be more effective, as I wrote in the piece, working externally and, and, and supporting institutions in that way.
1: Wow. So at some point, you must have realized you were making a decision. How did telling yourself you were making a decision feel?
0: You know what's interesting is, you know, I think like a lot of big decisions, you probably can't remember the moment that you make it. It's more of a process. It happens, um, you know, over maybe over several months. Uh, it happens during multiple conversations with people who are close to you or, or who know you well. And then you ultimately get to a point where you sort of realize, oh, OK, I think i always not always new. I think I knew early on that I should leave but now it's clear it's become clearer that I should leave and I think part of that decision was just also figuring out what was going to be the next step
1: so some people would go quietly other people go public you chose to tell the world about your decision what what was the thinking behind that or the feeling behind that
0: you know, and that's a really interesting question because I think many people would probably say like Uche, they wouldn't think that Uche would be the type to go loud, <laughs> go loudly. <laughs> but I think this experience, and I would say that it uh, was life altering for me, um, this experience of recognizing that um, despite like my my intentions and my hope of actually getting to do Really important structural work within this within NYU that that was not going to happen, and that I also had a very strong feeling in talking to my colleagues that it wasn't just NYU that this is something that is a problem in academic medicine, and that when we see racism in in medicine, it's also in other social institutions within within our country. And that I felt like this was an opportunity to really make a statement. Um, And I did.
1: (laughs) Was there blowback from your former employer?
0: Oh, yeah. I I think I'm probably (laughs) still persona non grata. But I also feel like, you know, I have only spoken about my experience and I've only spoken um, truth. And so um, I initially was really worried and that's why I didn't put the name of the institution first in the op-ed piece because I was just worried for legal reasons and then over the last year I've just felt very empowered. I think that also last year essentially with the pandemic exposing you know profound racial health inequities with with the killings of George Floyd and Brianna Taylor, It essentially reaffirmed my reasons for leaving NYU and doing the work that I'm doing in my organization. I feel complete vindication.
1: You know, as I worked with you on the essay, it felt like you were not just writing it for yourself, but you were writing it on behalf of a lot of people who are experiencing the same thing that you were. How have you seen academic medical centers fail to support Black physicians, Black nurses, other Black staff members?
0: You're right. I, I wasn't just writing it for myself. You know, definitely it was cathartic to write it, but I was writing it because I knew it wasn't just my experience, even though at the time I felt very alone. And the emails and the phone calls and text messages after I wrote that piece just reaffirmed for me that, I made the right decision to write it and and to publish and, and for you to accept it and, and for it to get published. Um, but I think that we still have a very long way to go. I think that what happened last year with, with um, you know, the, the racial reckoning in this country, I think there are some academic medical centers that have been truly grappling with these issues and are willing to do the work. I think there's some that still are not willing to do the work. Uh, there's, still needs to be significant structural change in academic medicine. There is no doubt. Um, There have been, as of recently, and this is all on Twitter, you know, I have a colleague at Kaiser's Medical School that recently, uh, a black woman who recently left after giving a lecture on, or was asked to leave, on racial bias. Um, and there's another case going on at Tulane um, uh, Medical School of a, of a black program director who filed a lawsuit, and the lawsuit itself is damning in talking about what she went through. So no, <laughs> academic medicine is not still not doing its part. <laughs> it still needs to do more in supporting us. Well, interesting
1: that you should mention Dr. Denner at, at Tulane. Um, in your first opinion, you, you mentioned being worried about retaliation. Yes. About being worried about blowback from the kinds of things that you were saying. Is this the kind of thing that you were worried about?
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, when I read um, Dr. Dinner's account and I read um, uh, the lawsuit, it was very triggering for me because I could only imagine how she felt that that's what I was scared of my, myself. Um, I didn't get to that point because I, I left, I, I think I left before anything like that could happen. But I think it's probably more common than we realize.
1: There's a movement on Twitter, hashtag DNR Tulane, asking medical students not to rank the school in their search for residency program matches. Do you have any sense of the traction that's gaining?
0: I mean, I I definitely, I don't know like the level of how how viral it's gone, but I do think that it's going to make an impact. You know, I think that students, trainees, faculty, I would never want them to walk into an environment where they're not going to be fully supported. And so, you know, go where you're appreciated, go where you're valued, go where you're loved. Um, And I think that it's clear from the from the lawsuit, what's in the lawsuit and not just that lawsuit, but there were other um, there are other um, issues that have come up in that program that maybe maybe that program may not be a hospitable place for um, black trainees and faculty.
1: I hope that there's a network of people who can tell young black physicians or pre-med students where to go.
0: Back in the day, I think in the 50s, there used to be like a green book, a, a book for um, you know, black Americans to let them know where they could travel that's safe. And there may need to be one for, for medical schools or, or, and, and academic medical centers, um, because we need to make sure that our students and our, and our faculty and trainees can thrive. We can't have them walk into situations where they are being not only undervalued, but mistreated. That is not acceptable.
1: Boy, if that ever came about, there could also be a movie to to, yes.
0: to, to follow I, 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 up on. And it. I'm happy to star in that movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> would you ever think about about going back to academic medicine?
0: No, no, <clears throat> <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, no way. I'm not well, and I say that only because the opportunities that I've had since I've left, I would have never had if I had remained. I have testified in front of. Congress twice um, on the racial health inequities in the pandemic. I have became a, a Yahoo News medical contributor. Um, I, I've been able to do things that there is no way any academic medical center would have allowed me to do if I had stayed. And I have my own organization where I can choose which, which medical centers, which healthcare startups, which organizations I want to work with. And so I have a freedom that I would never be able to have in academic medicine.
1: Did you start Advancing Health Equity before you left your position, or was that something you did afterwards?
0: I started it before I left, actually, and my plan was to you know, work part-time in academics and then spend the other part-time in Advancing Health Equity, but it just became really clear to me that I could no longer stay at NYU. And so almost a decision was made for me that I would focus full-time on Advancing Health Equity.
1: Tell me what your company does.
0: Oh, sure. So we work with any sort of healthcare-related organization. I've worked with pharmaceutical companies, medical schools, around addressing bias and racism in healthcare. So not only do I deliver keynotes, but we do trainings of clinical workforce around issues of implicit bias and and racism in patient care. Uh, We also do equity audits of organizations' practices and policies, as well as organizational assessments of a racial equity culture.
1: As you talk about it, you look joyful.
0: Yes, this is the work that I was meant to do. And leaving academic medicine is probably one of the best decisions I've ever made. And that's not to say that every black faculty should leave. You know, it, it, this is a deeply personal decision for each person. And they obviously have to consider multiple factors. But for me, it was the best decision, even though it was a decision I never thought I would have to make.
1: Is there a kind of hierarchy in medicine that academic medicine is better than community medicine, or you know how does that work
0: yeah, i mean i I think definitely within academic medicine, we think or you know when I used to be in there uh, we uh, that academic medicine really is the pinnacle of success. You are well respected and um and successful in a way that People in community medicine who, quote, unquote, just take care of patients aren't. Um, But I think that there's a lot for people in academic medicine to learn that that's not the end-all, be-all, that there are other ways to make an impact in medicine and in healthcare that you can do outside of academics.
1: You You mentioned Twitter. It seems like that's really evolved for you since you went public with your decision. Has that platform helped you in your work?
0: Oh Twitter is so interesting. It's like it's a beautiful creation and it's also incredibly toxic. <laughs> but but um but what I love about Twitter it's like it's like, this, like a great equalizer. Like like everyone has a voice on Twitter. And so for me, it's been a really interesting journey because my first tweet on Twitter was when I got promoted to associate professor at NYU. Mm. And at that, at that time, I literally had less than 10 followers and that tweet alone gave me a thousand followers. And so I said to myself, oh, I guess I should probably tweet often <laughs> because I, I have people who are expecting me to tweet. So I started tweeting and it's amazing that people started following me. But I think especially when I left academic medicine and I wrote that piece, I think for a lot of people that have had doubts and not only black faculty, I think, I think you know, students, um, my you know, my colleagues, I think people were empowered by uh, me writing that piece also. I think um, it helped some of them um, think about what they wanted to do with their own lives or their own work situations. And so I also gained a lot of followers as a result of that as well.
1: You've also tweeted about talking with vaccine-hesitant folks in your family and your community about getting vaccinated. Um, what's it feel like when you've been able to have a productive conversation and kind of turn somebody in what you would think is the right direction?
0: Oh, yeah. No, it, it feels it feels really, really good. And I have to say that um, the platform that Twitter has given me. I never intended to be an influencer, so to speak. Um, but if I'm going to influence people's perspectives about taking, taking a COVID vaccine, then that's the kind of influence that I want. And I'm glad that even my my own family members will also listen to me, uh, or at least, you know, we'll, we'll have repeated conversations and eventually I'll nudge them over to the other side where they're more willing to take the vaccine.
1: There seems to be a strong current of medicine that runs through your family. Your mother was a Harvard-trained physician, as are you and your sister. How did your mom's experience as a medical student and a physician influence you?
0: Oh, that's really it's really interesting. My mother—actually, my mother wrote a book—not um, a book, I'm sorry, a chapter in a book called Women in Medical Education, and so she wrote a little bit about her experience um, at Harvard. Um, she actually passed away when we were in, uh, in college, and so— um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what I remember is what kind of what I read about her. But, you know, for her going to medical school, it, w- it was huge because she didn't know any doctors personally. She was the first person in her family to go to college, first person to go to medical school. And um, for her, it was a very scary place. She was in, in in class with students whose parents had won Nobel prizes in chemistry, um, who were from very affluent backgrounds. And but she made it through. And for my mom, what was very important was for her to come back to her community. So a huge lesson that my sister and I have both learned from our mom is that you know we will always um, give back, right? So she came. My mom came back to Brooklyn, New York, to the same neighborhood where she grew up. And she worked there for many years, caring for her neighbors, mentoring uh, black medical students and and junior faculty. And so I think a lot of the same, um, same priorities and values that motivate me, I I learned that from from my mom.
1: So I read somewhere that um, your family holds the distinction of being the first two generation black family at Harvard Medical School.
0: Yeah, mother-daughter. Yes, we are, we're the first um, black mother-daughter legacy. And so I, you know, I mentioned that sometimes really as an honor to our mother because she had to overcome tremendous obstacles and barriers um, to get there. And we are merely continuing her legacy.
1: You wrote a very touching essay for the Harvard Crimson about celebrating your first mm-hmm. Mother's mm-hmm. Day without her. Um,
0: You're going to make me cry. Oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> It's okay. No, it's fine. And so you mentioned that one of the things that um, she liked to do and you liked to do with her was going to a museum on Mother's Day and sipping a cappuccino afterwards. Yes. Um, In addition to doing that, how, how do you try to carry on her legacy?
0: Yeah. So, so I think first and foremost, making sure to do the work that aligns with our values, um, my, with my own values and priorities, making sure to do the work that's authentic to me. Um, and then I think my mother probably, even though she would have liked for us to stay in academic medicine, like this idea that we both are doing work around health equity, around health justice, um, I think just pays homage to, to a woman who worked in her own local hospital, worked for, um, led Black physician organizations, and really cared deeply about the health of Black communities. And so I think in the work that we're both doing with our organizations, we are really elevating uh, her legacy in the work that she did.
1: Well, wherever she is, she must be a really proud mama.
0: I think she is. I think she is.
1: Well, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Uche. Thank you so much for having chosen STAT to publish your essay. And thanks for talking with me today. I hope you and yours stay safe and healthy in this strange and uncertain time.
0: Thank you so much, Pat. And thank you for choosing my piece to publish in First Opinion. It really meant a lot to me.
1: Thanks for listening to the First Opinion podcast. Thanks to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Alyssa Ambrose and Hyacinth Empanado. Thanks to executive producer Rick Burke. I love to hear from listeners. Let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at And please put podcast in the subject line. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.